0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, William Dudley, the former president of the New York Fed. Bloomberg opinion columnist with a timely essay uh, this morning that gets us to Wednesday, but far more gets us to the new, new, and the new theory. Bill, I want to go back to Berkeley. And I've always had such a respect for the interesting faculty that chose the University of California, Berkeley, over other uh, institutions. And it all wraps around a theory, a belief, a behavior. And that wraps around this strange word, credibility. What is the character of the Fed's credibility in a time where we're making it up as we go? Well,
1: there's a risk to their credibility because one, inflation's higher for longer, two, inflation expectations are starting to uh, rise, uh, and three, they've sort of bound, bound themselves in terms of you know, when they can actually raise rates. They said they're not gonna raise rates at all until they've hit 2% inflation, hit full employment, and are confident is gonna stay above 2% in the future. If inflation expectations get unanchored, that's going to push inflation up even before we get to maximum sustainable employment.
0: So they could be in a tough spot. Be in a tough spot, but take it back to like the history of Eichengreen or maybe the social economics of Brad DeLong and the other young Turks out at your Berkeley here. Again, we're making it up as we go with the debt dynamics that we have now. What is the theory that you would propose to maintain this valuable, this precious credibility? Well, I think the Fed should be a little bit more flexible in terms of when they're
1: willing to raise long-term, uh, short-term interest rates. Uh, if inflation expectations truly become unanchored, that's a problem for actual inflation. And I, w- I would think that they would have to react to that. Uh, the, the current regime where they don't do anything until they reach maximum sustainable employment, in their mind, might uh, turn out to be too late.
2: How concerned are you, Bill, to that point about recent consumer, consumer confidence surveys that show uh, that consumers expect inflation to be materially above the Fed's expectations over the next three to five years at a time when this is also dampening their optimism?
1: Well, the New York Fed publishes a, a household survey of expectations about inflation. And the most recent reading is really quite uh, disturbing. Uh, the three-month inflation expectations are now up to four percent, which is essentially double uh, what the, the Fed's actually targeted.
2: Right. So how concerning is this to you? I mean, the idea is that consumers don't always get it right. However, this does signal a credibility issue beyond markets for the Federal Reserve to address.
1: Well, the key question is whether people trust the Fed. If people trust the Fed uh, and trust the Fed's forecast, then inflation expectations will come back down as inflation moderates. If people don't trust the Fed, Inflation expectations will stay high. That will push up inflation, and the Fed will have a, have a problem on seems.
2: So do you think that the market could potentially have a problem or a disruption if the Fed does not signal tapering soon enough?
1: Well, I think the Fed is going to signal, signal tapering uh, pretty soon. I mean, I think that uh, this meeting, they'll probably uh, reinforce the idea that they're making progress towards their goals, setting up uh, the notion that uh, tapering is likely to be announced at the November FOMC meeting.
0: well what is the effect of the seniorage of the U.S. dollar on all of this philosophy and calculus. We are different with the U.S. dollar. How does that make Chairman Paul's press conference different on Wednesday?
1: Well, having the dollar as a reserve currency uh, allows us to attract uh, foreign capital on very uh, attractive terms, as long as we have credibility. Uh, If people start to doubt the The Fed's commitment to a stable inflation over time, you know, then the dollar would start to weaken and people, if that went on for a good period of time, then people might start looking around for substitutes to the U.S. dollar.
0: But you have been a great optimist on this. You've, you know, within the body of the William Dudley work, frankly, Bill, I'll take it back to Goldman Sachs. You've been a great optimist on the institutional strength of the American system. Do you maintain that that institutional strength is there with the fractious Washington that we have? Well, the thing we have
1: going for it is number one, we have a very deep and liquid capital market, and two, the Fed has done a good job keeping inflation in check, so we have credibility with the rest of the world. As long as we don't mess up our economy, people are going to be willing to continue to use the dollar as the reserve currency because there aren't really great alternatives.
0: Yeah, you know, I look, Bill, we've got to get back to the markets here as they uh, are challenged futures at negative 81. But, Bill, to me, it is just a Fed on a massive ex-post basis will wait and wait and wait. We are mentioning Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon earlier. I think of Timberlake and the Georgia School. And the answer is, when in doubt, wait, right?
1: Well, I think it depends on what the risks are. I think one thing we'll, we will see this uh, this week is the dot plot, the forecast of, of interest rates in 2022 will probably show more people be, being in favor of a rate hike in 2022. And that may reduce the concerns about the Fed being late.
3: Bill, you faced down the risks out of China many times on the FOMC. I'm thinking of the summer of 2015, I'm thinking of early 2016 as well. If we're at the Fed, looking at the risks that are playing out at the moment, building in China, how are you processing that, digesting it at the moment, Bill? I'd love your insight on that. I think your experience is really valuable on this particular topic.
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the Federal Reserve certainly understands that China is an important player in the global economy. If China hit a, had a hard landing, that would have very serious consequences for the rest of the world and, and and for the United States. I think at this point, it's really premature to reach that conclusion, though, the, Chinese have tried to tighten things up before, and when it starts to actually affect uh, the rate of growth and employment, uh, they tend to ease off on the brakes, and I think that's what's gonna happen this time as well.
3: How do you think the chairman will approach that issue in the news conference this Wednesday, Bill? I think he'll just say that we take the world as it is,
1: and obviously we're updating our views about what's happening in the rest of the world as things unfold. So I don't think he's gonna make a strong statement about his views about how China's gonna unfold.
2: Well, but do you think, Bill, for example, if there is a 20 percent drawdown, like some are expecting Mike Wilson, in particular of Morgan Stanley, what does the Fed do? Do they not taper at all?
4: Well,
1: obviously, if things happen in a way that change the economic outlook in a meaningful way, then obviously the Fed will adjust course. But at this point, uh, they're not going to react to small market moves uh, and then defer the tapering on that basis. They have to change their economic forecast. That's why the summary of economic projections uh, this week is also important because it's going to basically tell you what the Fed thinks about how the economy is likely to evolve, not just in 2021 and 22, but also 23 and 24.
2: Bill, this Fed is a different Fed than the one that you are a member of in the sense that its balance sheet is bigger and the stakes are higher should there be a disruption because their ammunition is just limited. How much does a nearly $9 trillion balance sheet tie their hands going forward in terms of how much ammunition they can really deploy?
1: There's no limit on the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. They can make it much bigger than it is right now. I mean, it's obviously we're not used to having a balance sheet of this magnitude, but there's no actual limit on how big
0: the Fed's balance sheet can get. Bill, you've been very vocal, you know, with the public responsibilities you've had over the years. I, I really value the Bloomberg opinion essays as well. What is the great research mystery now? If you're lined up with the people like, say, Vincent Reinhardt of the time of Greenspan, if you're lined up with the young PhDs at the Fed, what's the research idea now to you that bears immediate and further study?
1: Well, the biggest conundrum we have right now is how tight is the U.S. labor market? On one hand, we still have about uh, 6 okay. million uh, dollar from where we were in February 2020. On the other hand number of job openings is at a record level. So is the the labor market loose or is the labor market... Okay,
0: well, you went right to my third rail, and I'm going to go there because of your heritage here with Goldman Sachs and Berkeley. Bill Dudley, do we have a clue what the overlay of technology is on our labor share and our labor dynamics?
1: Well, the labor market is obviously changing in a pretty rapid way, and obviously the COVID pandemic accelerated that transformation. So I think it does raise questions about you know, the, the level of uncertainty we have about the labor market. I think the level of uncertainty about how tight the labor market right now is unusually
3: high. Bill, got to leave it there. An oh, important yeah. topic, important conversation so, so. going into Wednesday. Looking forward to that decision and news conference this coming Wednesday. Bill dunting there, Bloomberg opinion columnist and senior advisor to Bloomberg Economics and former New York Fed president. It is the volatility that Laurie Calvacina has been waiting for. The RBC Capital Markets Head of U.S. Equity Strategy joins us right now. Laurie, is this it? Is this the setup, the beginning of it at least, that you've been waiting for?
5: I think it very well could be, John. I mean, you know, looking at the futures this morning, this is the first time in quite some time that we've had a real, meaningful break. And I think if you talk to investors, um, the fear is starting to become palpable. And ultimately, we really do need to see a break in institutional investor sentiment and positioning to get this pause that ultimately refreshes. Um, Look, I, you know, we've been talking a long time about this. You know, we've talked a lot about the deceleration and the rate of change in S and P earnings growth. Time and time again, coming out of a recession, it typically leads to a pretty meaningful pullback in the stock market. Um, It is natural for this kind of pullback to happen. And we've got a lot of other other catalysts besides slowing earnings growth that are starting to perk up to help catalyze (laughs) that downward move. So, look, I I, I am actually somewhat hopeful that we can just go ahead and get this done and get this out of the way and then move on. Um, I never want to see a down market, but I do think that this is just a natural uh, part of the process when you come out of a recession that you have to have this digestion period.
0: What is the overbought nature of the market right now of institutions? What's the character of their confidence?
5: I think that it is a hope that some of the pressures we have on the market and earnings growth in particular on the inflation side, the supply chain side, that those will be uh, resolved sooner rather than later. I think there is also the idea that we are heading into a strong economy again next year. I think at the end of the day, investors have to ask themselves, what's the risk of a recession? It really is that simple. Is it yes? Is it no? If the answer is no, you are typically better off sitting around waiting and buying the dip it's really only when a true recession fear builds in that institutions will take that positioning down and move to a more defensive posture
2: Lori, when do we know that it's the dip to buy
5: i think that we've got to watch the sentiment indicators very closely lisa and you know we actually had one take a very good step in the right direction last week which is if you look at the aaii retail investor survey that comes out every week, the net bullishness dipped to about minus 17%. So we saw bears pick up pretty quickly. And we also saw the bulls just absolutely collapse. Now that's one week of data. We really need to see that hold for four weeks on the four week average. But typically, When you get below 10%, minus 10% on the four-week average, that's a very good buy signal for the market on a three and 12-month forward basis. Now, that's just one side of the sentiment (coughs) puzzle. You also have to look at what institutions are doing. And the CFTC data, which we get weekly, is showing us that we're still sitting around all-time highs. If you look at S&P 500 contracts, if you look at aggregated S&P, or uh, broader U.S. equity market futures positioning. So we need to see that institutional positioning come down. And we probably need to see a little bit more damage on the retail side for a few more
3: weeks. Laurie, your call, 4,500 year-end, 4,900 year-end next year. Where does Fed policy fit into this? Lisa, Tom, bringing that up this morning. Wednesday could be interesting, given what we're seeing on the screen this morning. What's the Fed call that goes into that 4,900 next year?
5: So the Fed call really impacts two things. is One, our assumptions on multiples, and second, our, our how we want to be positioned for the broader U.S. equity market. Look, I think a lot of the damage to the market itself, John, was done back in the spring when you saw all the economists around the street (coughs) clamor for the Fed to start sending those tapering signals. And back then, we saw small caps really start to underperform large caps. We've also seen the value trade take a pretty big hit if you look at 2Q performance. That is important because if you look back at the last tapering episode, we saw markets actually ultimately continue to climb, but the risk trade took a hit. So value underperformed and small cap underperformed. That's, That's, I think, one issue. But the other issue, frankly, is that if you look at the Fed balance sheet, it's really enabled multiple expansions in in the post-financial crisis Mm -hmm. era. So if you take the balance sheet expansion away, you don't get any more multiple expansion that's really going to be earnings growth-driven market going
0: forward. Now, Lori, I'm I'm in a complete sweat here this morning with futures where they are now. We're on the SPX of 4.1% drawdown. I mean, a crisis is at hand. The VIX isn't even out to 30. We're out to 25.14. When I decide to load the boat, Which sector has the most combination of persistency and velocity into 2022?
5: So I'll say the two sectors that I'm going to be telling people to buy this week are going to be financials and technology. You've got a big pillar of the value trade, big pillar of the growth trade. I think as we as we come out of these you know sort of shorter term concerns on the market, I think the value trade will do well again. And I think the financials trade, it's cheap. Um, it doesn't have supply chain issues that things like industrials have. That's going to be your cleanest, purest way to play that value pop. But longer term, what we do know about the Fed and so let's move away from tapering and start talking about hikes. But. But typically, the Fed hiking cycle does end up killing the value trade as well. We see that time and time again. Um, And I think longer term, when we start to see economic growth decelerate back towards kind of trend-like levels, you want to be in the growth trade, and tech is probably your best way to play that.
3: Laurie, thank you. Good to catch up. As always, Laurie Cavasino, RBC Capital Markets Head of U.S. Equity Strategy.
0: Andrew Hollenhorst drives for the conversation with Citigroup, their chief U.S. economist. And maybe it's a slowdown Q3, a pickup Q4, and then it's a complete mystery. What is the most mysterious part of the mystery known as economic 2022?
6: I, I think if there's one big mystery out there, maybe the, the most important mystery also, it's what's going on in the labor market right now how serious are these worker shortages? How long will they continue for? So we, we know that we're in an economy that's constrained by the supply side. And the big question is how significant is that constraint and how long will it be with us?
0: Well- Oh, well, the constraints there, and it wraps around a consumer as well. The consumer is linked in, and supply constraints, and particularly uh, linked into the challenges and prosperities of China. How do you link American consumption, seventy percent of the economy, into the dynamics we observe out of Hong Kong and Beijing? Yeah, it's interesting, Tom, because if you do the kind of direct effects that economists please will do, go to three
6: different. decimal points. Yeah, you, you get yeah you get you get relatively relatively smaller numbers. The, the, the issue, of course, is that if you get a general risk off in financial markets, a general concern in financial markets, then we find that global economies become much more correlated. We saw that post-2008, for instance. So you, you always have to watch these global risks, even if when you kind of run the numbers on these things, the, the direct effects look relatively small.
3: Walk me through the China issues right now, then, as far as you see them, Andrew, to the United States. If you're at the Federal Reserve, and they've faced this a few times over the last 10 years, risks coming out of China. How would they face this one down this time around?
6: That's what's so difficult for the Federal Reserve. Of course, as the Federal Reserve, you aren't controlling primarily what's happening domestically, and your monetary policy should focus on domestic issues. But you have to take into account any exogenous shock, right? Whether that be concerns about the debt ceiling, which you were just talking about, concerns about what's going on externally. So I think that's what Fed officials are trying to navigate here. Now, I think they feel they're in a pretty good place because we have very accommodative financial conditions right now. So they'll probably still be confident in proceeding towards tapering. But, you know, as always with the Fed, probably leaving Lots of optionality, lots of contingencies there in case something happens down the road. They're not going to set themselves on a preset course.
2: Andrew, a lot of equity analysts are very focused on whether supply chain disruptions are transitory. That's one of the key aspects with margin pressures. Does the Fed really care how long they last or is that not the inflationary input that they're really focused on? Is it more just the labor mismatch that we're seeing?
6: So I think it does matter the tightness that you're seeing in product markets. If it continues for a longer period of time and we're talking about things like semiconductors where these could be continuing into mid-2022 towards the end of 2022. That's going to put continued upward pressure on prices, and that can push up inflation expectations, and then the Fed becomes concerned. But really, again, I I would go back to the labor market because ultimately in product markets, you can expand capacity, you can expand supply. What's harder to expand supply of is workers because they're fundamentally in fixed supply. So so I think that would be my concern if I were a Fed official.
2: Andrew, I'm still trying to understand why it is that the Fed is continuing with $120 billion of purchases, how it directly feeds into the labor market. Basically, is this a statement saying that the Fed has not successfully divorced the idea of taper from raising rates, from tightening, and that they will not be able to do that no matter what their communication is?
6: So I I think you're not alone, Lisa. I think there are even some Fed officials who are with you that are looking at what's going on with very low levels of interest rates, house prices that have increased very dramatically and saying, do we really need $120 billion a month of asset purchases? And is it really doing something for labor markets right now, which is the mandate where the Fed is still trying to make progress? So I I think there are real questions about the kind of marginal benefit of doing continued asset purchases at this point, which is why they're being right. tapered down. Now, now in terms of separating taper from tightening interest rates, yes, I think we're going to hear from Chair Powell, these are separate issues. But remember, Fed officials don't want to raise interest rates until they've fully tapered purchases. So I think there is a sense in which these can never be completely disconnected. It, it's still a hawkish movement or a less dovish movement, maybe we should say, to wind down the purchase plan, and it does set you up for rate heights down the line.
0: Andrew, the linkage here of the great Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon back to your UCLA, I mean, come on. It's a huge deal. You were thrown the two volumes, Alan Meltzer, History of the Fed, and said, yeah, I'll read the introduction. Give me the history of the Fed right now, and the answer is they wait and wait and wait. They're as data dependent now as they've ever been, right? So those those volumes are on my
6: bookshelf, Tom. I can't say whether or not I've read. all. Oh, good. I can
0: say I have not read them. And I told that to Professor Meltzer once. Go. (laughs) But um, but I think that is what the, the Fed is
6: trying to do with this flexible average inflation targeting. The whole idea is. We're going to wait until we actually see the inflation emerging, which we're seeing now. Now, maybe it's transitory, but we're, we're certainly seeing those numbers now. And then we're going to wait until inflation expectations are moving higher. And we have seen those expectations move higher. University of Michigan, five to 10-year expectation sitting around 3%. Some of the other survey-based expectation measures also higher. So that, that is a sense in which Fed officials, relative to their prior policy, they're essentially trying to be behind the curve relative to where they would have been historically just because it's been so difficult to get inflation higher. Now, when when they start raising interest rates, that would say that they should have a lot more confidence in continuing to raise interest rates because you've essentially waited for inflation to run a little bit stronger, for inflation expectations to pick up. And I think that's why they're thinking about, you know, another 18 months or so before they're raising rates. You're really waiting until you're, you know, towards the end of 2022 or the beginning of 2023.
3: Andrew, how does the dot plot help them achieve those objectives this new approach great question
6: <laughs> i'm not sure that every fed official would feel that it does help them achieve their objectives at this point i mean we're going to get a 2024 dot in this summary of economic projections we think it's going to be around 1.6 percent now for for the market of course this is out in 2024 it's a median right when i say 1.6 that's <laughs> yeah. the median there's going to be a wide dispersion oh, of dots you. And so I, you. I think what you'll, you'll really hear chair powell doing is saying Look, these are far out expectations. They're contingent on how the economy performs and markets shouldn't be kind of reading these as literally what the Fed is going to do.
0: Lisa, Alan Meltzer would have screamed about the dots. I know that for certain.
2: And we wouldn't read about it or listen to it clearly because nobody else uh, here has actually fully read his documents. I will say, Andrew, just to sort of tie this all together and to move from the dots to the real world, when is September actually starting? What's your sense looking at the real world data in terms of how long the reopening has been pushed back by the Delta variant, by the concerns that we're seeing slow some of the service sector reopening?
6: So I think you're definitely seeing that in the travel sector. That's where it comes through most clearly. If we look at where we thought, not really only domestic travel, but also international travel, which has just clearly been held back by this. And we're hearing from airlines about canceled flights or flights that are pushed out. Now, some of that may be only pushed out a few months, but of course, that's contingent on what the public health scenario looks like a few months from now. So that's very clear in travel. Outside of travel, we're actually seeing demand holding up relatively well. And a lot of the growth that's being pushed out of Q3 and Q4 comes back to those s- supply-side issues. If you look at you know, only 13 million auto sales in the month of August at an annualized rate, much lower than expected. And that's purely a supply issue. At some point, that semiconductor situation will normalize. That growth will come back. But then, as an economist, the question is, is this you know, Q3 growth that's not happening and moving into Q4? Or are we pushing this out into 2022 at this point?
3: Andrew, thank you. Andrew Hollenhorst there on the week ahead, the year ahead, city chief, U.S. economist. The issue to try to get back to normal. Lisa's talked about schools getting <coughs> back to normal, yeah. Tom, and as we've seen through the first couple of weeks of schools trying to get back to normal, that's difficult.
0: It is, and the testing continues, and certainly it's a really constructive. Let's go to Amber D'Souza now. We are hugely advantaged to speak to her uh, right after this announcement with Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Amber, this has been expected, but then there's more to come. What is more to come now? Is it just more study, more testing?
4: Well, we have been waiting to see the data in children, so this is really exciting to see the beginning data come out. With an infectious disease, it's very hard to stop transmission without also vaccinating children because they can continue <laughs> to spread it. So, uh, everything we know about the biology of SARS-CoV-2 suggests that it would likely be effective. Uh, these vaccines would likely be effective in children, but this is the first data, and it's uh, it's mm-hmm. important to figure out the right dose. We need to look through all of the data that's provided in the trial, but this seems like a really exciting development.
0: In the right dose, what are the side effects that you're worried about? What are they studying for in terms of side effects? Is it simplistic like heart inflammation or is it much more subtle?
4: Well, the great thing about a trial design is you're open to any side effect, even one of those you might not have expected right? So um, all the same side effects that are seen in adults would be monitored, but there might be other side effects in children, and those would be captured with the reporting system. So these trials have considered different doses. Sometimes with children, they need the same dose as adults, and sometimes uh, a smaller dose is the right dosing. So um, this data that's been released today looks like it's for a smaller dose, and it's shown to boost antibody responses and not have high uh, side effects. So We'll have to wait and see what the what the other dosing um, schedule suggests, but I'm sure that information will be submitted for consideration.
2: Amber, what's the time frame from seeking emergency approval from releasing this data for the first time to emergency approval and actually getting kids aged 5 to 11 vaccinated? That's a great
4: question. Last time it took around a month, um, so that is very fast um, for, for normal processes. So it, it might be a month, it, it might even be a handful of weeks um, since this builds on previous data for a similar vaccine, same vaccine, different dose. Um, But definitely not this week, It it would take weeks.
2: There's also the issue of the complicating factor of booster shots and the idea that supplies now have to not just meet the millions of kids who would be eligible, but also people who might be eligible for additional shots. How does this sort of work out in terms of prioritization and supplies that are currently available?
4: Yeah, there has been there have been planning around that, that point. Um, if the booster demand for boosters hit at the same time as the emergency authorization for children, um, there might be, you know, slight challenges getting an appointment for, for the short term, um, like we saw with, with earlier rollouts for a week or two. But there has been a lot of planning. We have a good amount of vaccine. So that would be that would not that situation would not last. We definitely have enough vaccine to extend to children once there's a new emergency authorization.
0: On a Monday morning in September, as we move inside with a bit of a chill, what is the trend of vaccination in the country? I mean, we had a benchmark of 1 million a day. It dipped down below that. It came back. Where are we on vaccination right now, Dr. D'Souza?
4: Um, you know, it's very slow. Um, I, I I don't remember the exact number this week, but it's, you know, less than a percent of Americans every week getting vaccinated. We're It's a slow proportion. We are getting additional people, but but the progress has been very slow now for months. Um, So the people who are currently not vaccinated, there's not as much appetite, but there is a tremendous interest by many younger individuals who have not yet had the ability to get vaccinated. So I think once this data is reviewed, if emergency authorization is given, it's clear that there are many parents and children interested in vaccinations. Yep. Doctor, there might be some
3: parents who are hesitant about using a vaccine that is being used under emergency use authorization for someone young as five. What would you say to them?
4: Well, the reason that it hasn't been available for children is because we've been waiting for this data. And so, you know, I think uh, I certainly have confidence in this process and uh The data seems strong from what the headlines have said, but it'll have to be fully reviewed. If the FDA grants emergency youth authorization, um, that means they're very confident um, in its safety and utility. And um, every parent will have to make the decision, but we know that the mild side effects associated with a vaccine, if any, and the majority of people have no side effects. Um, you know, pale in comparison to all the other outcomes we're seeing. So I, I expect there'll be many parents very interested in the vaccine. For their D-
3: Doctor, thank you. We do have to leave it there. We appreciate your time this morning. On an important story, I'm Dr. Sousa there, mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health, Professor of Epidemiology.